Hello everyone and welcome to Tech to Transform, the Mantis podcast. In episode 10, Mantis PRMD Eleanor Willock met Rachel Walters, Director of Development of NHS Care at HCA Healthcare. Although Rachel ends 2021 in independent healthcare, she started it as Director of Programme Delivery in the NHS, where she led a team through the eye of the pandemic storm, securing the resources hospitals needed to deliver care to all patients, both COVID sufferers and those needing critical care. Rachel and Eleanor talk about how the NHS expanded its footprint and worked with private healthcare during COVID and how that will continue to work in the months to come. They also discuss the differences between private partnership and privatisation for the NHS, how to lead a team in a crisis, and what would happen if Rachel had 10 minutes in an Uber with Sajid Javid. If you're new to navigating the private or public healthcare delivery landscape, take a listen. Hi, it's me, Eleanor Willock, the MD of Mantis PR, and today I'm here with somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for our Tech to Transform podcast for a long time. I'd like to introduce you all to Rachel Waters. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The um, the COVID pandemic is something that's really um, important to, and central to this discussion that I wanted to have for you yeah. today. So first of all, why don't you tell us um, a bit about um, the role you're in now and then talk about very, very briefly, just explain the job you were in previously before you joined HCA. Yeah, so it's all very much a journey of um, happenstance, really, and serendipity. So I have been at HCA, according to an email I got this morning from HR, 90 days. Um, take. Thank you very much. It's flown. Um, if we ignore the hell that was um, childcare during the summer holidays. Mm-hmm. Turns out it's a terrible time to start a new job at the beginning yeah. of the summer holidays. Okay. But anyway, especially in health, because everyone goes away for the summer. Um so my title at HCA is Director of Development for NHS Care. And put very crudely, my job is to develop our NHS portfolio. So historically, okay. HCA had done very little NHS work before the COVID pandemic and before the National IS contract, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, but obviously through that, those partnerships were strengthened and it's kind of a win-win at the moment with for most IS providers. When I say IS, I mean independent sector providers sure. um, and the NHS because private medical insurance work and overseas work, et cetera, is still rebuilding. Mm-hmm. And the NHS has this enormous elective recovery challenge. So it's kind of a win-win for us to be working quite closely together. Okay. Um, so HCA, perhaps you could yeah. explain to our listeners HCA in a nutshell. HCA is a healthcare corporation of America. Um, it's primarily an American company and it's massive in the US, um, primarily in the South, but its headquarters are in Nashville. Um, hundreds of hospitals in the UK, they have six hospitals um, plus other sites and a number of NHS joint ventures. So we have a joint venture with GST, with Guys and St. Thomas's, with UCLH. And with a Christie in Manchester, mm-hmm. and we're also entering into well, we're, we're we're building at the moment a a new site in partnership with UHB, so University Hospitals Birmingham, which is truly okay. exciting. Our six sites are all London based. Um, we've got the Princess Grace. Going to get this wrong. The Princess Grace, Harley Street Clinic, the Lister Hospital in Chelsea, um, the Wellington Hospital, which is next to Lords. I am missing one, and then the Portland. And to the oh, London Bridge Hospital, sorry, London Bridge Hospital, and then the Portland. So, so if any, 
you'd have heard of the Portland game. the Royal Baby game, then that's quite... A, that's well, quite I was not with Portland, but I don't. I think they're Chell West. I think they're the... Is it the Ludo wing or something like that? Ludo doesn't sound right, but something like that. So they're not actually us. We're more random celebrities, I think. But yeah, so historically, HCA's business is... is PMI, British PMI, some privately owned insurance, but a lot of corporate insurance and a lot of overseas work, particularly from the Middle East. So we do a lot of the embassies and in the Middle East and their families. So. Okay, so that so, so by that you mean that if if I'm working for the Turkish embassy in in the UK and I'm unfortunate enough to need a, a gallbladder, yes, but also if you are a member of the civil service in Qatar they'll ship you over here for your treatment rather than have it there okay right yeah and so obviously that part of our work has been a little bit quiet for the last 18 months yeah no travel I can imagine um so it's been quite a recent career change for you yeah tell us about what you were doing before you joined ACA okay so my immediate last job was at NHS England so I've been in the NHS in or around the NHS for 15, 16 years. Um, I started on the graduate management training scheme as a general trainee. I stayed in commissioning for a while, went to EY for a while, did strategy and commissioning stuff there. And then after I'd had my kids, went back to the NHS, went to NHS England. My job when I started at NHS England, so I was there for about two and a half years. And my original job <clears throat> was um, director of program delivery. Yeah, uh, I NHS think that's England. when we met about that time. Yeah, it was a women's leadership network event yeah, right. yeah um where I fangirled about the flex NHS girls because I just think they're amazing yeah, um zero chill no I can't play cool <laughs> um so that was about standardizing our transformation the service transformation programs and making them more efficient etc and, and improving efficacy overnight in NHS England and I'm sure in lots of parts the NHS or local government a lot of us got new jobs basically with COVID so at the end of February in 2020, I've got no concept of time anymore, which I think is the same for lots of people, but yeah, it's just a really So at the end of February 2020, Simon Pritt Stevens pretty much said, Go get every bed you can get because we don't know what's coming. You know, we're looking at pictures of Italy and um, China, and we just we just didn't know. And our reasonable worst case scenario wasn't wasn't looking good. So Neil Permain, who was my director there, and coincidentally, well, not coincidentally, because he was my route into NHC, was also my director on my first grad scheme placement. Okay. Um, the moral being, keep your networks. Um, Neil was asked to lead a national procurement of essentially a block contract of all the independent sector hospitals in the UK, not in the UK, in England. Um, and because that was Neil's job, my job was to make that happen as well. So I was the director for operations of all the independent sector hospitals through okay. COVID, through wave one. So a couple, there was a couple of things that stood out that I wouldn't, wanted to ask you another question on, but I'll start with the most recent part of that. So it became your job to find as many beds that could conceivably be used for patients to send out of the NHS hospitals so that COVID patients could use those beds? Yeah, so we didn't know at the time whether we were, because things were changing so quickly, the pace was just nuts. So if you were in that system, you'd know, you'll, you'll, you'll recognise that, but it was so quick. We didn't 
know if we would use that capacity for COVID patients or for well patients and elective okay. care. And actually, in reality, what happened was we, particularly in London, stripped out a lot of equipment and a lot of staff from yeah. those um, facilities. So ventilators, obviously, in the short term, but also hemo-infiltration devices and a ton of nursing staff. And they either went into the NHS or Nightingales, etc. Okay. Elsewhere and in London as well, we used um, the rest of the capacity as elective backup. Right. So we were able to obviously bring friends to those facilities as green pathways for primarily P1, P2 patients, urgent cardiac cancer surgeries, and also cancer therapies. We had a lot of um, sort of chemotherapy sessions set up in what used to be offices, etc., which were, okay. were safe environments. So you, do you mean within hospital settings or in other buildings? Within private hospital settings, but basically, oh, we were able to use that whole footprint of that facility. So we used it very differently in a lot of cases. At one point in the press, it, talk, it, it had talked about how things like offices and hotels might be taken over. Was that something that you um, were having to look yeah. at? Yeah, I mean, I, did, I wasn't that close to that. Um, but all sorts of conversations were happening in those early weeks. So I, one of the great things for me through those early weeks of COVID was that I got to know so many people across NHSEI and other yeah, parts but... of the organisation and DHSC that I would never normally have worked with. And there was a chap in the States and we would speak weirdly often. People would come forward and say, you know, do you want to use our offices? Do you want to use our fleet of limos or whatever it was? You know, yeah. I think we had quite early on I don't know how people made their way in but it was just this strange network of you know contacts someone knew someone who knew someone quite early on we had someone offer us their fleet of cruise ships but it was PR wise it wouldn't have been great given what was happening with cruise ships that week but no. yeah it was definitely everything was talked about and hotel space for step down or for social care it was all on the table and it was it was kind of weirdly liberal I shouldn't say that and I definitely didn't think it at the time but it, it's quite, it was quite liberating because I don't think anybody felt particularly constrained by the normal bureaucracy. You yeah, know, really, yeah. really no idea awesome. was a bad idea. Yeah, no idea was a bad idea. You know, people just chucked things up, both from the public coming to us and saying, do you want this? And within, you know, policy-making organisations. Well, we, as an agency, we... Um, we filled in all the forms and put us tried to put ourselves on the roster to offer any help, not PR no. specifically, any help. We had a conversation, I think, about laptops at one point yeah. for schools, didn't we? Yeah. Um, for homeschooling. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the great positives of it for me. You know, every cloud and all that. And I think you have to be a bit Pollyanna about these things or you can go a bit mad. But <clears throat> yeah, yeah. crazy. So what was a typical day like? How did you, how, where did your responsibility start and stop? Were you bringing the ideas of we could use this space, we could make it look like this to somebody and they would making it work or? Uh, we did, I would say across NHS, across NHSEI, sorry. Um, people settled into kind of those leadership roles fairly quickly. So Neil and I were very quickly in that pot of IS, you know, that was our, that was our gig, that was our programme. We both have consulting expertise. So I suppose we approached it quite like that you know, what's our aim, what are we going to do, how are we going to build a team, etc. Spent a lot of time doing some kind of rapid design of a programme operator model and kind of rapid thinking. And then, yeah, I guess we settled into that. Other people, God, how did it work? There was 
there were calls stood up so everyone was in a work stream and those work streams would all meet yeah. so for example we'd talk to estates or equipment or vaccines it wasn't vaccines then but what was the big ppe etc yeah. and run with those things my role specifically so we we divvied up neil <clears throat> excuse me neil led the commercial negotiation and my job was to, to hammer the ops thing so basically to make it work okay. and it was variable really in terms of how close the relationships between the nhs and the is were nationally yeah. so in some areas obviously they had a very close working relationship and some organizations is organizations have done a lot of nhs work and others like hca are kind of out of the game really mm-hmm. so mm. how, how did you manage and motivate a team through that period so in terms of building the team as i said i, I got a new job pretty much overnight Mm. consequently my deputy got a new job overnight and um she's amazing so I, I think one of the kind of characteristics of good leadership or management is hiring people that are better than you and Vicky McMillan is just so much better than me and I was so glad she was there so we kind of did it together really Neil and I again as a throwback probably to consulting spent quite a lot of time designing what we thought the program model would look like and, and the staffing EI NHCI had a resource hub where you could basically again every, everyone was up for grabs and everything was on the table so you could take your jobs back which was like an a5 scribbled bit of paper in most cases yeah. so what have you got that kind of meets this um and it was a weird one because you didn't really have time to dwell on that you didn't really have time to interview people it was more of a quick chat and a does it fit I, did people want the job did people see the challenge and think yes result i would say most people wanted to do something for covid you know yeah. I, I think very broadly speaking most people who choose to work in the nhs probably have similar values <coughs> I felt that i didn't whether or not they wanted the job after a couple of months in it might be a different yeah. question but um which has just reminded me that i didn't answer your question about what a typical day looks like ignore that bit we'll go back to that um, i bet that should we just agree that there was no typical day <laughs> there was no typical day and <laughs> when there was it mostly just was about jack and i trying my husband and i trying to split the day and manage the kids and 18 hour days work it was mental anyway um so we we knew what we were looking for in terms of overall skill um mm-hmm. overall experience I I think NHSEI, possibly like a lot of NHS organisations, actually can be quite hierarchical, but I don't really work that way, and, and nor does Neil, actually. I just I don't really care what band you are. I just want to work with good people who really yeah. want to yeah. get stuff done and learn and do a good job. And I was really, again, really lucky, actually. I had um, a, a couple of more junior members of staff, so Harriet Wood, who was an absolute find, and my, my graduate actually came to work with us, Remy Goldsmith, and she's now gone on to the accelerated access collaborative and so uh, collaborative and we had a really good team um we got pretty lucky i think because we you know it was just a snatch and grab really to be to be be perfectly honest and actually i suppose our team had two sides because we had there was a commercial side to it which was the other side that um kind of someone in julian kelly's team ran and then we had my national ops team but actually each of those our team docked into a an ops lead the is in each of the seven regions didn't explain that very well so they all interlinked and then actually the the kind of third part of that was that the is had a lead in each region so someone from one of the organizations from one of the is providers kind of took on that agnostic role to work with the regional operations lead and club uh, coordinate across the region so 
that's how we built it yeah go on do you want to ask a question before I well <laughs> it must have felt relentless I mean it all felt relentless to to most of us just living it but trying to create change during that atmosphere what what did a win look like like when you were looking to motivate people what did what did a, a win of the week look like was it getting more getting more um floor space getting more beds was it well no because we kind of it wasn't getting the space it was using the space so okay. it was using the the, the the capability and capacity that we'd we procured i think because of the way we ended up using the is capacity that we had a block contract actually in retrospect wasn't what we should you know wasn't best suited to that we should have had mm -hmm. some sort of activity cost and volume type arrangement but it's what we had 13 weeks in the first instance so it was more about getting people to use that locally okay. regionally system-wide locally because otherwise it was really poor value for money but also we couldn't really measure value for money in the same old how many hips have you done type thing because yeah, okay. the, the, the playing field had just totally <laughs> I think a win looked like kind of from a team's perspective <laughs> everyone's just standing I mean it was really relentless it was they were really long days I would say we didn't I didn't really manage a team so much as and this sounds like I've swallowed some sort of hideous management books but it was more about management book was more about leadership than management because NHS management can get a bit old school kind of key skills frameworky and it just you know there was no time for that I spent a fair bit of time when people joined the team trying to understand what they wanted from that engagement. Yeah. So far as we could fulfill it, it was a lot of unknowns and there was a lot of, tell me what's nice, what you're nice to have is. I can't guarantee we'll hit it, but mm -hmm. let's see if we can do that. Um, most of the team had never met in person um, and still haven't actually. Yeah, yeah. A good old WhatsApp brief still going, but there isn't, <laughs> they still have the, the elusive, is team drinks hasn't actually happened yet um so i'd say it was more yeah it, building that camaraderie was a bit more of a challenge but we vicky and i had a rule that the first <laughs> it's probably quite wasteful but the first 10 minutes of every team meeting and we were having them three times a week was chat it was a welfare check-in how you doing what's going on in your real life because you know people were working crazy hours crazy hard but they also had elderly parents who were mm -hmm. you know needed shopping dropping off or whatever it was so we did try and find out a bit about what was going into um going on in people's real lives I think the mood was probably right as I said earlier I think people yeah. wanted to do their bit so I think that was on our side um and I think we really tried to recognize the value of a team yeah because it was so relentless so having each other's back kind of you know if someone was having a data nightmare who could step in and help or whatever it was. And I think from my perspective, when there were really long nights or days, they ran into each other. Yeah. Not asking my team to do anything that I wasn't doing was really yeah. important. So if there was, you know, a bit of the week, I'd go over the top first. Um, and there was a couple of points actually where I just sent gin. <laughs> I literally sent gin and chocolate and eye masks. <laughs> a thank you goes a long way doesn't it and I it, it was fairly insignificant given how people were, were working but yeah just the small things I guess I don't I don't know about that I mean I think I'm I'm with you on certainly on the management I mean 
at Mantis, we were very lucky because we had all worked from home anyway. So we just, yeah. when we locked down, it was another day, very different in atmosphere, but we didn't have the any of the tech issues or any of the co- communication between each other issues that a lot of people yeah. had. Um, you know, you say that 10 minutes on a call three times a week talking personal stuff may have felt a bit wasteful to me. It's, it's music to my ears. I mean, I'm, I'm perhaps the sort of manager that wants to know too much about my team and is always interested in how they are and maybe I'm slightly too nosy I don't know <laughs> they'll probably tell no, me I'm with you um huge over Sarah yeah 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 exactly that's you know they're, they're sick of my chat I can definitely confirm that but um I feel like this is a really fascinating conversation for me because it's giving me such an insight into the other side of the NHS from you know the we hear about the NHS frontline a lot but we don't hear about the 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 I don't like the term back office in this context. yeah it's what I can it's, think of you know when when you when people are stood on their doorsteps clapping for the NHS did you feel like they were clapping for you so the first week of the clapping I was so exhausted it, I think it was March and I was so exhausted. You know that tiredness where you just don't know what to do with yourself, but you kind of mm-hmm. want your mum because you just want to cry. Mm-hmm. So the first week really got to me and um, I did weeps. Like, from then on, I loathed the clapping. <laughs> I don't know why. I just had a real intolerance for it. Um, I'm from quite a clinical family, so I'm a bit of a black sheep, kind of paper pusher. But I still feel a bit guilty feeling slightly traumatised about those first few weeks of working on this because they were all doing actual frontline real jobs you know one of them with my, my niece is a respiratory physio with uh, no PPE then had COVID blue lighted into hospital has had eight courses of steroids since you know me moaning about 11 o'clock teams meetings just isn't the same but I think yeah it what there were a lot of people did a lot of stuff you didn't see yeah well, you, you you got just as positive outcomes in terms of assisting that though yeah, I think so. I mean, I would say that to my, what it's, it's one of those ridiculous, probably female things, isn't it? I would say that to my team, but I just wouldn't say it to myself. No, and maybe, you maybe wouldn't say it to a medical member of the family who was there. Absolutely. But, you know, I, uh, personally, I think you've got, you've, you've, you should have absolute permission to say that you, you did a fantastic thing. I mean, I did give myself permission to use my card to go to the front of the queue in M&S. No well, shame. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So you should. Um, if only you could do the same for petrol at the moment, or any but any I other. Think I think I might start doing that. You know, because side note, there, I did see a bit um, cordoned off in Sainsbury's, and they were people were showing cards. So I assume they were doing some sort of or a NHS oil type. <laughs> yeah, or maybe they were just slipping the attendant a tenner. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> police. Um, <laughs> so. You're not in. You're not in the NHS anymore. You're not an NHS staff member. You've moved to, um, as we would say, if anybody became a journalist or vice versa, the dark side. Um, but yeah. it's not really the dark side, is it? Where you've moved to, it's the different no. side. So, I was wondering, can you give us a really potted introduction to how private healthcare and the NHS work together? Yes. So that has happened for a long time. Yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's anything new whether people realize that or not I'm not sure I mean it's worth saying that GPS are essentially private providers they're not yeah. employed by the NHS so 
when various journalists and publications start ranting about privatisation on the NHS. So, you know, worth remembering that. Side note. Um, so it has historically happened for a long time. As long as I, I can think of NHS consultants, or a lot of NHS consultants have been doing private lists, etc., often within NHS hospitals and facilities. When I joined the NHS, it was, it was the kind of 80, the heyday of 18 weeks. Mm-hmm. And we, the, we, the NHS, um, was pumping a lot of money into independent sector treatment centres, ISTCs. So that's... The heyday know. of 18 weeks being 18 weeks wait for... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so the push towards achieving 18-week targets, which is still constitutional standards, um, okay. but we're way off. So, yeah, referral to treatment time. And then within that, within those standards, there are obviously milestones along the way for diagnostics, etc. And then there's a two-week cancer standard, etc. Um, so it's not new. I think historically, the stuff that's got the activity that's gone through the independent sector is the kind of low complexity, high volume work. So knee replacements, hip replacements, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, you know, a huge proportion of the public will have experienced that if they've gone through one of those procedures in the last 20 years or so or, or before. Um, the shift, COVID, the, the first wave of COVID and that block contract was a real shift mm-hmm. because we, on a number of fronts, actually, we, we kind of managed to solve some problems that would have otherwise taken months, if not years, to sort and had been bubbling away for years about trainees going from NHS organisations into independent sector theatres, um, people who would never have crossed that threshold, that invisible yeah, threshold yeah, yeah. to the dark side, you know, went both ways. So there's a real moment to capitalise on that, I think. And obviously within that time, as I said earlier, the IS did a lot more cancer, cardiac, complex type work. So HCA did, did transplants, etc. cetera. Um, and now, obviously, the NHS has its enormous elective recovery challenge. And it's shifted again. I think there's a recognition from commissioners and providers that the NHS can't get through that, that backlog alone not yeah. just backlog, but the late presentations and the surge that's coming through, starting to come through now. I've worked with Trust in the past who didn't really want to outsource or subcontract with IS providers because they felt like it was an admission of, you know, weakness or, or, or um, them not being able to do it themselves. But I think those days have kind of ended, really, and a lot of Trust prepared to do it. So the way yeah. it works... Sorry, go on. This isn't the narrative on privatising healthcare. No. No, so this is, I know that I'm just making it clear that this is a completely different thing. This is the NHS and private healthcare working together to clear a backlog of, yes. of um, operations that need to happen. So the general public will be seeing intense benefits from these partnerships. Yeah. So what happens is generally either a CCG or integrated care system, an ICS, will commission directly from the IS. So that's more likely to happen, I would say, with that low complexity, high volume stuff. Or a trust will subcontract directly with, for example, HCA. So we, we're we doing some work on TAVIs at the moment. So transaortic um, valve replacements, cardiac cardiology with Plymouth. So patients from Cornwall, they've been waiting a long time. They urgently need this surgery. We ship them up basically they do all the pre-work all the pre-assessment all the covid swabbing etc in plymouth they come up and they have their surgery with us 
one night in HDU, a couple of nights in the ward and back to Plymouth. For the patient, the only thing that's different apart from the length of travel mm. is that they have it in a really nice room. Yeah. It's yeah. still, it, it basically is a way to get in their heart surgery much quicker um, than they would if they had to wait. You know, we're taking a lot of plastic work at the moment, um, oncoplastics for yeah. breast from a London trust. And those are of 80 patients, 50 of them are 52 week waiters and the other 30 are over 104 week waiters so it's not you know it's not about privatization it's about figuring out how the is can best support the nhs to get to where it needs to get to yeah and that is different for different geographical areas and also different providers so for hca it doesn't make sense for us to do the low complexity, high volume stuff, we are far better set up because we've got good ITU and HDU facilities, et cetera, and amazing clinical capabilities because we partner with most of the London teaching hospitals. Makes sense for us to do that complex work. Right. But there are some stuff, there are some things that just wouldn't make commercial sense for us or the NHS for us to do. So it's about kind of finding that middle ground. And I, you know, there is a mutual benefit, essentially. Mm-hmm. As, as private work picks up again and overseas work comes back online the capacity that certainly we excuse me as as a fairly niche provider have available to the nhs will constrict so we kind of i'm not sure you'll know the answer to this because as we've discussed many times you're not technical but how does patient flow work so actually better than you think given the kind of archaic (laughs) approach to sharing so Mm -hmm. do you mean in terms of patient data yeah and notes and stuff so for example we have each of our facilities we are one hca but we've got six hospitals a bit like one nhs and however many hospitals mm-hmm. um each of our sites has nhs email addresses that notes can be sent to securely etc what tends to happen is that the trust manage all the comms with the patient so that there isn't that confusion mm-hmm. they transfer the notes the patient does that spell of the, the surgical spell of the episode with us notes go back and it's coded through an NHS coding system. So the activity is coded as the trust, but delivered on an HCA site. Um, funnily enough, it's, it's not a thing that trips us up. You would oh. think it would be, but it's, you know, we're governed by the same GDPR and confidentiality and Caldecott rules, et cetera. That's really good to hear. There are loads of things that could trip us up. The other week it was packed lunches for some patients going home that we hadn't thought of, but you, it's never the thing you think it's going to be, is it? Well, pack lunches trip a lot of us up. A, a Capri Sun and a bag of Pombers. Yeah. I've never got on board with Capri Sun. It's just not my drink of choice. It's a straw and the metallicness. And... It's just not good for anyone. It's not good for... It's squirty for kids, isn't it? Anyway. Pombers. Ah, but have you learned the one, the, the business with the ears of the of the, um, of the the juice? Cartons. Box? Yeah. The I'm already juice. there. If you, I didn't know that until it was I was schooled late. by some patronising woman in a park, but I am there yeah. now. Well, this is it. I, I needed that patronising woman in a park. Oh. My kids needed those ears. Pombez is another one as well, isn't it? You don't actually know what they taste like until you are forced to eat them by some child poking them right in your face. I don't think I was forced. I'm just a terrible picker. Do you go cheese and onion and salt and vinegar or do you just go plain? Oh, no. We're a classic household. Red flags only. Yeah, the, they disappoint me in their in a, their ability to break as you dip them in the hummus. Though I know that never bothers me. That's kids. so true, and it's such a like twenty twenty one child problem, isn't it? Yeah, Can it you is. imagine being given a plate a bowl of hummus with your crisps in the eighties? <laughs> yeah, hum- think- hummus is an, hummus is definitely um, a parenting 
a parenting narrative that uh, you wouldn't have got in the 80s or 90s. I don't think I had hummus until I had kids, actually, to be fair. (laughs) Um, I am digressing because what I really want to know is um, having worked in the NHS and now working in the uh, private sector of healthcare, what's your opinion here? How much of healthcare is healthcare and how much of it is business and logistics and operations and communications? So I... I don't know if it's a spoiler to say you tipped me off about some of these questions, but how dare you? These are completely spoiler. I was tipped off. Doesn't mean I'm prepared in advance. Don't worry. I had half an hour. Never been so embarrassed. Um, But a really good question. And I'd never really thought about it before. And I think it's a, and this might be a cop out, but I don't think you can have one without the other. So if your logistics, operational protocols and processes and your communication processes, et cetera, don't work, can't really have good healthcare, mm-hmm. and if you have good kind of interventional healthcare, but the other stuff doesn't work, I'm not sure it really matters. I mean, it does matter from a health outcome perspective, but I think I don't think you can split them up. I think from a patient perspective, they would say it's healthcare, but only if the other stuff works better, works yeah. well. Does that yeah, make yeah. sense? But, I think but if you, it doesn't work well, it impacts on you your healthcare experience. Doctor. If you had a fantastic doctor and you know really vibed with them and they helped you and you you had a good outcome medically but you didn't get your bill on time and you didn't get couldn't get through to them and you had to wait 104 weeks to see them again then yeah. the system's not done right for you has it it's not it's it, it's it's all of those things in one absolutely i think i had a really good director of public health and i worked in durham his name i happened I just don't know what it was I can't remember at all but she said when explaining why she was in the job she was in she was saying you know you can have great acute care you can go in and have a really good experience in hospital or a really good surgical outcome but if you then go back to a house that is damp and you can't heat it and you your kids are hungry when they go to school if they go to school you know does it what, what's the impact of that it's, it's that kind of Maslow wraparounds uh, I think it's it's a similar parallel with this it, if you don't have all the to use your phrase back office stuff working yeah it kind of takes away from the healthcare uh, in, interventional outcome that makes sense an experience yeah and I, I have to say that analogy from your colleague in Durham is really good because at the moment with the um seeming not U-turn exactly, but the, the, the disregard of what needs to happen in social care by um, what's going on at the moment. It's hard to see how coming out of hospital for some people um, is ever going to be a positive thing. When they Completely. Don't. And it's, you know, it's not just social care, it's the universal credit stuff and the, just generally the widening gulf in inequalities and the fact that some kids were really left behind last year. You know, that mm. is the stuff now of COVID, for covid it's the COVID stuff rather that keeps me awake. That's the stuff I worry about. At 3am, it's not the, you know, do we have PPE? And do we, are people going to get the vaccine? It's the, shit, this is going to take a couple of generations at best to recover from. Yeah. Um, it's a scary prospect, isn't it? Um, did you catch COVID? Did you get it? I think I had it really early on. So the medical director, the guy who's medical, my, the guy who's the medical no this is hard to say i think i had it early on <laughs> the guy who is now my medical director he's a cardiologist with whom i was working in march 
think that's what it was that I had um it floored me it didn't mm-hmm. stop working but I was extremely unwell um but I had no antibodies and I was tested whenever that was pre-vaccine <coughs> so I don't know but then my niece who was really really unwell who's still very unwell with long COVID also had no antibodies when she was tested so mm-hmm. I don't know I definitely haven't had it since testing was introduced yeah and I have been you know using the central line and all its revolting glory haven't done the tube yet. Yeah, I mean, minimal mask wearing at the moment. Yeah. I'd say about thirty percent, if that. Yeah, I'm. Um, I've been quite socially cautious, and it's definitely affected my. Um, I'm an outgoing and a social person, but I have taken. I've been really surprised by how much it's knocked my confidence socially. Yeah, and I completely get that. Yeah, it really, really annoys me. Really. And also, it's both knocked a little bit of my... Less so now, I guess, because I live in quite an, a, a little pocket of London that's quite sociable and largely based in a park. And mm-hmm. not like not like park drinking after school, but like, you know, when you see people. Occasionally. Occasionally, that's us, oh, not the kids. Um, but it's also made me really lazy. Sometimes I find the prospect of having to go out and see people completely overwhelming I'd much rather stay at home in something elasticated so yes well um I have a friend who is always late for everything and um I once nearly bought her a t-shirt that said sorry I'm late I didn't want to come I've seen that I've seen that phrase and stuff I I think I feel like I could probably get that now for um for myself or maybe just as a zoom background um it's been really lovely talking to you um, and we're nearly at the end of our time, but I did just want to ask you my final completely not at all um, premeditated question, which is if you had 10 minutes in an Uber with the health secretary, current, not previous, what would you tell him? I did have to write this down because I was in danger of getting really ranty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will try and not be ranty, but three things. Of course, there are three things, said the ex-consultant. So pathways and access, funding and workforce no surprise <laughs> to anyone i think first and foremost first and foremost there is a time to capitalize on the opportunities that covid has presented in mm-hmm. health and social care and i am really worried that we won't do that yes yeah. so there's that something about having the balls to do it frankly mm-hmm. i mean healthcare is a bit like the third rail of politics but someone's going to have to at least get near to the third rail if not touch it and mm-hmm. um, and also there's a time to capitalise on public perception of the NHS. You know, people were on their doorsteps clapping and it was all good and well and we were staying home to save the NHS. Um, a line that my husband's ad agency came up with, by the way. Um, wow, well but done. But actually people aren't going to be clapping when they're waiting 104 weeks for their breast reconstruction. So what can we do about public perception? Kind of the, the public value of the nhs and and how we regard it as a free good because it isn't a free good what, so what, what maybe he could start with there is not agreeing with a national newspaper's campaign on gps and video consultations so it's on my list like you know said publication and i'm not going to name it because i won't give it airtime it's like when people bring farage out on talk shows and like stop giving them out a platform oh he's um, on next i thought you'd like to oh, meet I, oh sorry nigel <laughs> We probably have very similar similar views. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Grab it by the horns. You know, there are 
there are plenty of good comms people in government. They've got an advertising agency. So I'm pointing upstairs because my husband's in the study upstairs, you know, working for them pretty much full time. I'm sure we could try and influence the public one way or another. Yeah. But from a pathways perspective, going back to my three things, please start to recognise the NHS as a whole. It's not just primary care. It's not just secondary care. It has to include mental health. Remember parity of esteem that kind of came and went, that lovely notion. Community. You can't solve any of those in isolation and I think the general public has this misconception that those things are joined up and they're obviously very much not so solving the whole key to all of that I think is partnership with local government mm -hmm. from whether that's from a public health health promotion perspective or a social social care perspective or a town planning perspective but you know it's so closely linked and we know that it can work because we did it in COVID yeah those those local partnerships and local decision-making forums were amazing. And I, I suppose at the heart of that for me is local decision-making has to be empowered and it yeah. can't just be lip service. Agreed. So Amanda um, Pritchard, I <laughs> almost forgot her name, that's not very helpful. Amanda Pritchard used to, when I, before I left NHSE, we were designing the operating model for the NHS and her catchphrase was system by default. So we don't do things nationally, systems are the driver and I am completely behind that I think that's absolutely the right thing to do so if they could get behind that that would be good maybe pass some legislation that may or may not go through um, and access mental health primarily and this is the GP the paper that shall be not named debate you know digitalization is great for some people and I'm very happy to do all my healthcare stuff with a GP on the phone frankly but it's not one size fits all so let's stop letting the you know who run the propaganda on that let's ask people and let people make yeah. their own decisions and ask a cross-section of people yeah who've been who've been affected yeah i completely agree with i you. mean by this point he probably wants to get out of the house <laughs> but um funding doesn't doesn't work there's not enough of it i don't think it flows very well i would love to see tariff be abolished i don't think it encourages collaboration and partnership working I don't think it works commercially for most people um, especially knowing what I now know from mm -hmm. the independent sector um, and multi-year planning and allocation would be great would give some freedom and flexibility to organizations to actually know what they've got coming I mean this year I get why we had to do h1 and h2 but it's I mean it's so it's so tricky and then workforce <laughs> it's the it's the only thing that solves any of this I think for yeah. me so funding for, for training and a, a hell of an effort around retention across all workforce retention groups. Retention is more important than recruitment at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, really. absolutely. To all of us, to all and of us. Some of that is about remuneration and, you know, is the gender for change still the right thing and does that still work? I don't know. But then it's bigger than that, isn't it? It's, you know, how do we foster a better work-life balance? How do we get around the fact that a lot of wards still run on goodwill? They run on you know, your band six nurse is staying for 30 minutes routinely yeah. or three hours routinely at the end of each shift. Well, my, um, um, sadly, my stepfather has just died in um, hospital in Warrington and he does he didn't have a mobile phone. And for example, the above and beyond there is yeah. the ward nurse using her own mobile phone so that my mum could speak to him. That's really heartbreaking. It is, isn't it? But, but it is, um, that's the stuff that makes the NHS run. Yeah. And I I think we take it for granted. 
and more so than ever now probably but you know it's things like it's things like childcare. Seventy six percent of the workforce is women, and childcare is not solely a woman a woman's issue, and yet it kind of is. So how do we how do we make it easier? How do we make it more affordable? You know, Milton Keynes, Kate's team, and Joe Harrison's team have done some amazing work on just free parking and tea and coffee. It's not yeah. you know look at what Apple and Google do. How mm. do we learn from those? It's not even user experience, is it? But those that employee experience do you feel they do so well from listening to our to your conversation and I've really enjoyed it and one of the reasons why I've enjoyed it is because from an outsider's perspective clearly you've left the NHS but the career path you've chosen next you're still giving back to it you're still improving it you're not you've not actually left you're actually haven't totally sold out (laughs) no I still, I mean, most of my day now is still working with the NHS to improve in a different way. Health. It's just finding the, basically what I'm trying to do is find the right way for, uh, for HDA to help. Mm-hmm. And yes, there is a commercial, you know, it, there is a bottom line. There has to be a profit there somewhere along the line, but it's not without the positive side of it, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know, I, you know, it's such a cliche, but I love the NHS. I will always work in and around it, whether that's, you know, in consulting or in the private sector, in in independent sector, healthcare, or even in local government. I actually don't think I'll ever go back to local government. (laughs) But, you know, that is my, it's, it's such a cliche, but it's a passion. And I, it's just, it's just so broken at the moment, but there's a huge opportunity. It just needs someone to kind of, to have the balls to do it it's not a time for timidity it's a time for grabbing the third rail and to not use the nhs or social care as a political football but to give it some money some direction and then leave it leave it be give it some stability to do what it needs to do because it it has got brilliant people and it can do it it just needs to be empowered too i think that i'm going to probably book the health secretary and uber just so that you can get in it with him and tell him all this because that would we be have a, a black cap it's a bit more spacious I don't want to sit too close yeah would you go would you go opposite him or would you go next to him? yes because I couldn't wag my finger as effectively next to him and I don't think I'd be able to control myself so I'd probably have to go opposite. really you could really lean in and yeah really another lean thing well yeah. yeah okay fair enough well um i have loved our conversation it's been Thanks really good nice to see you in person and um thank you very very much for coming and joining us on tech to transform and um i hope we'll see you again in um another season another time thank you so much rachel thanks a lot have a All good right. day bye